This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. Each week, a top nonfiction author is interviewed by a journalist, public policymaker, legislator, or others familiar with their work. We post the podcast every Sunday, subscribe, and never miss an episode. This week, our guest is K.T. McFarland, former White House advisor and author of the book, Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. She's interviewed by author and columnist Danielle McLaughlin. Katie McFarland, it is such a pleasure to speak with you today about your book, Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. I'm going to get right in to the idea of revolution. You say in the book, America has been through viciously divisive periods before, some far worse than the one we're living through today. With the hindsight of history, we can see them as inflection points, the transitional periods between an old system that had broken down and a new one still largely in formation. Are we at an inflection point? Absolutely. We're right in the middle of it. And I think that the best example of it is in 2016 in the Republican primaries, it was a, a real civil war in the Republican Party that the establishment Republicans represented by Jeb Bush and others didn't get the nomination, didn't get the support of the American people. Who got it? It was the revolutionary Donald Trump. The Democrats are going through the same thing right now, that they're having a civil war in their party. But is it going to be the traditional Democrats? Is it going to be some outsider? Is it going to be a socialist? But I think that that is indicative of the fact that Washington just doesn't work, that the stuff that's worked for the last 40 years in the United States to govern the people, it really hasn't kept up with the country. And I guess that at the end of this book, what I realized after a long period of sort of thoughtfulness and I went into the wilderness and trying to figure it out, is that America goes through these divisive periods roughly every 40 years. Now, why? It's because we're a very dynamic na- a country. I mean, d- demographically, geographically, socially, economically, we are constantly reinventing ourselves, not just as individuals, but as a nation. And government, by its very nature, is sort of stuck. It's, it's a status quo institution. As this is how we've always done things, we're going to always do this thing. We're going to do things the same way again. And it's people who then get stuck, and it's a status quo. So America's set up to have these revolutions, mm-hmm. political revolutions. We had one in the very beginning in, in the American Revolution, but ever since then, we've mostly had them, the revolutions that played out in the ballot box. And I think that's what we're in the middle of now. I see. Now... One of the things you said at the beginning of your book, you were very interested in definitions. And you said, uh, without definitions, we're just talking past each other or more likely just screaming at each other. And before we spoke today, we had a bit of a, uh, a bit of a conversation about the idea that we can have constructive dialogue across the aisle, not be yelling at each and screaming yeah. at each other, which might actually make for some good TV and, and get some sort of hate watching going on. But certainly the more productive conversations that we can have, especially in this day and age, are based in common ground, civility and understanding of each other's differences. Can you explain to me what you mean by nationalism, what you mean by populism, and how it might be different than others' definitions? Okay, I think there are four things to to define. Nationalism and populism, and then elitism and globalism. I was always, for decades, in the... I was part of the Republican foreign policy establishment. You know, I went to all those schools. I had jobs in those administrations. But over the last, I'd say, 10 or so years, I came to really reject a lot of the thinking that I'd had before about globalism. Now, globalism, in my mind, is the, is the idea that because it's a sophisticated economy, an international economy, the world is flat, 
that the um, that the boundaries, national boundaries, aren't as important. Mm -hmm. That national boundaries are not important when you think of the internet and you think of finance going and people going. So the the boundaries are less important because it's the free flow of information, ideas, uh, individuals, uh, finance, business, and so that's a, a an internationalist, a globalist thinks well. That's the new world, mm -hmm. and so we really don't need to think so much about the national laws and regulations. We really need to have global institutions, global regulations that apply to anybody. The second part of it, though, is the elitism, and I think that that stems from, again, a complicated world, a complicated society. So only the experts, only the people who've had you know, graduate degrees in nuclear weapons know how to, or should have, be able to have any kind of an opinion on national security. So it's those two together. One, borders don't matter, and experts do. And a lot of elitists are the people who think, well, if we only had this international group of enlightened people, that they could better govern the world and we would be a safer and happy place. That's sort of where I was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. I'm not there anymore for a couple of reasons. One, the elitists you know, they're not, they're not taking care of all of the people. Mm -hmm. And that the American people, especially I as a patriotic, red-blooded American, I really believe that the American people are sovereign, not some self-selected group of experts, um, let's say bureaucrat aristocrats, if you will. It's the American people who have the right to choose their leaders. If they don't like their leaders, throw them out. They also have the American people have the right to make mistakes and then change their mind. But the other part of it, which is globalism versus nationalism, I think that we have spent far too long um, dealing with the world as we wish it would be. Mm -hmm. That the United States at the end of World War II, we were the dominant country in the world, economically, right. militarily. And what we did was um, we were very generous to, the, to our former allies and even to our former adversaries who had had their societies devastated by World War II. So we, we entered into security agreements, bilateral, multilateral security agreements, as well as trade agreements to our disadvantage. I mean, it was, it, we put up 75% of the um, resources for NATO, for example. Um, the trade agreements we had were, were very lopsided. You know, a lot of them were, in fact, at the expense of American industry in order to encourage economic development and rebuilding in the devastated nations of Europe or Japan. And so that's how things were for 50, 60, 70 years. But I didn't think that made sense anymore because the world had changed. A lot of those countries, most of them, had not only recovered economically, but in fact were surpassing us in many ways. We did the same thing with China in around 2000, where we said to ourselves, well, we're going to give China a helping hand, we're going to help them economically develop, because they, in the end, will be like Japan or Korea or Europe. They will be our trading partners, we will all play by the same rules, they will be our friends. But it didn't work out the same way with China. No. And no. so that's why I broke with nationalism, I mean, I broke with globalism and broke with elitism well before Donald Trump came along. I was already there by 2014 and 15. And the reason I was is I went around the country. I did a lot of public speaking at groups around the country. Now, I am an elitist, okay? I live in a really nice cocoon in a bubble in New York. But as I went around the country, um, I knew something was happening. I couldn't figure out what it was. So I then did my own informal polling, and I would get up to the podium, and, and I would say, how many of you think that... Um, the economy isn't where it was, that you won't have the opportunities for your children's generation that you've had 
about a third of the hands went up. And then I said, well, how do you, do you think America's losing its place in the world? We're getting kicked around by pipsqueak countries that we shouldn't be getting kicked around in. You know, maybe half the hands are up. And so then I, and then I would ask, well, how many of you think that um, the values of America that we think of as American values, self-reliance, independence, ingenuity, how many of you think that those are kind of frittering away? Well, then we're now 75 percent percent of the people have a hand up. And then I would say, how many of you think it's Washington's fault? Everybody's hand went up, <laughs> including the guy running the sound equipment. And so I realized that the people I were talk- was talking to, you know, women's groups, um, college students, security groups, foreign policy experts, business groups, they were all doing really well for the most part. They weren't suffering, but yet they knew something was very wrong in the country. And so that's when I really had an awakening and a conversion. So decided that the ways that the country had kept the peace um, and had governed itself for decades just weren't working anymore. And so I became a committed nationalist, my version of it, Mm -hmm. and a committed populist, my version of it, um, before Donald Trump even came on the scene. But I would say, and I want to really point out, to me, nationalism isn't the xenophobic kind of nationalism where you hate the other guy. Right. And my populism isn't, oh, well... You know, we don't have to do anything. We should, we're all being, let's give everybody everything. It's not that kind. That's for somebody else to talk about. But for me, it is getting back to America's roots. What I, uh, what I appreciate when you talk about elitism is that you're self-aware. And so you talk about your own education experience, the people that you're around. And I can sense some tension in a sense. So, for example, when you talk about your time in the White House, and I'm really interested in talking to you about that as a Deputy National Security Advisor, some of the people that you called on, including people like Fiona Hill uh, and Matt Pottinger, I think was the mm-hmm. person that you said, we need a China person. Matt was, um, he was a journalist for the Wall Street Journal, and then he went to the Marines, as you said, in his uh, mid-early 30s. Is there a tension between the need for expertise in the place like, a place like the White House, where you are dealing with the world's most complex problems? The sort of, is there a tension between needing that, needing the people who are educated, who have, have some experience, who have been on the ground in Afghanistan mm-hmm. or have written you know, extensively about issues that concern us, is there a tension with that and the idea of, about a people's government? Absolutely. But that's why you have a president. Because you get the best advice you can get, and then right. you decide whether you want to take it or not. I mean, I was responsible for hiring the two names that you've mentioned, Dr. Yeah. Fiona Hill, who is head of um, Russia and Europe at the Brookings Institution. I'd known her, read her books, known her for years. And I thought she would be a really important addition. I knew she wasn't going to agree with me or Trump on a lot of things. But I thought before Trump took office that what he had said on the campaign trail, that he wanted to improve relations with Russia. I was not in the least bit naive about the Russians. You know, I, they've been doing bad stuff for a long time against right. the United States, mucking around in our elections, our political process for decades. But I thought that Dr. Fiona Hill would be a very good advisor to Trump because I hoped that Trump could get into negotiations with Putin, and I wanted her to be able to say to him, Let's have the backstory here. Let's drive a harder deal. And sadly, it's not how it worked out because of the Russia investigation and all mm-hmm. the rest. But I thought she would be a very good um, advisor to Trump. She's fearless. And I thought that right. he would respect her views. And he, I think he did. It was just that's not the way it worked out. No. As far as Matt Pottinger, I'd known him again for decades. And what I thought was good about him was he had real-world experience in the business world as well as in the journalist world, as well as a Marine, also fearless. And he wanted to take a much tougher stand on China, which I knew Trump wanted to do. Right.
So let's talk about China. You have been very clear in your book that past administrations have not recognised that the rise of China is really the challenge for the 20th and mm-hmm. for the, this coming century. I'm interested in your thoughts on Xi Jinping, who is now president for life. I'm interested in your thoughts of competing with, a, with an economy that is very much sort of state-run. And I'm interested in your thoughts about how the president has been tough with China in a way that other presidents may have not been tough enough. Where do you want to start? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's start with the sort of the imbalance or the asymmetry between a capitalist country like America mm-hmm. and a state-run economy with a with a president for life like Xi Jinping. If we're trying to trade, if we're trying to trade on an even footing. How does that shake you know out? What, like, actually, that that's where I'd like to finish. Sure. Let's start at who? Where is China? Who are they? What's happened in the let's last twenty or thirty years? So Xi Jinping, president for life, as you point out. Um, he has essentially, like the Chinese Communist Party has, is said to them, give us all the power. You don't have any individual rights, but give us all the power and we promise you that you will have prosperity and peace. And that would be the glue that held the country together, especially in the last, say, 20 or so years as mm-hmm. communism has sort of faded away as an ideology. So there's no religion that holds them together. There's no real ideology. It's so the so promise. It's a state paternalism? It's, yeah, well, it's authoritarianism, I would say. And then maybe ethnic pride and, and historical pride in being a, a Chinese, yes. the Chinese history. And, and so I think that that's where they start out with. Mm-hmm. That's the deal that the Chinese leadership, Chinese Communist Party, has made with the Chinese people. It's worked out great for the last, probably since 1980, 1990, prosperity has increased. But the other thing is to look at the generation. I mean, China, when China's leaders advance, it's not like in America or in the West where you might have an old person and a young person, and they're both in the United States Senate together. Right. Or you have an old candidate and a young candidate and a medium-aged candidate. In China, you advance with your generation. So that you start out, and you're probably identified at, you know, maybe 10 years old as really smart, somebody that we want to nurture. And so the Chinese advance with their age group. By the time they get to be uh, president of China, they've seen all the leaders that they're now dealing with in their government bureaucracy and their foreign policy community and their military community. They've been working together for decades. So they know each other. they're in a cohort. Basically. It's like so you move with cohort. your cohort. You yeah. don't move with your class. You don't move with your age group. You move with your age cohort. And so who are the people who are running China today? Well, they're people in their 60s. Right. Where were they in the formative years of their lives when they were in their teens? They were in the middle of the Cultural Revolution. So the Cultural Revolution in China was in the, in the 60s up to maybe 1972 and 3. That's when these guys were in their late teens. And a lot of the leadership of China now had been princelings. They were the sons mm-hmm. of the leaders of China. And when the Cultural Revolution happened, which was chaotic and disruptive, and it was Red Guard students who were storming um, universities, who were tearing down leaders, and it was really um, the wrong kind of populist revolution. But they went wild, and they took a lot of the senior leaders of China, and they put them in jail, or they rusticated them and sent them out into the country, basically in slave labor. Xi Jinping's father was one of those people. So for his childhood experience, as all of his cohort of colleagues, a lot of them had been in the top positions when they were young and they lived a good life in Beijing. And then all of a sudden they were sent to the countryside um, to, along with their families right. to be punished and beaten. And so I think that when Xi Jinping and his group, to them, that's the worst thing that could happen, is a disruptive society, is people going crazy, 
order breaking down. A revolution. So, a revolution <laughs> of the wrong kind for right. them. So what they want to do at all costs is to make sure that China doesn't go there again. I think that drives their whole authoritarian social point system, and I think that, that, that drives their position in the world. They want order at all costs. They don't believe like we do that, oh, sometimes revolutions are good things, and right. individual freedoms. You're not going to have individual freedoms. You're going to be as the government tells you. So that's sort of where they start out. They don't want disorder, and they want prosperity. Everything was going along quite nicely. The United States, as I said, really tried to help China to modernize, to, and yes. they thought, we thought, well, well, they'll modernize, they'll open their economy, like they'll Japan open their society. It'll be, like Japan. it'll be just like Japan, right. it'll be just like Korea, it'll be just like all the other countries, it's all going to be great, happy world, kumbaya. But it didn't happen because of the Chinese needed to, um, they were coming from so far behind. They tried to do and have done in probably 20 and 30 years what it took the West hundreds of years to do. And they're very conscious of that, that they have people who were in starvation situations 20 years ago and that now they're building modern cities. So they'll do anything to keep that up. So the United States, a lot of the um, manufacturing jobs that we have, I think you can safely say, they were in America, they went to China. And America never really retrained a lot of the people. We, are, we had unemployment or underemployment of a large section of our population while the Chinese were booming. So we enabled their success. We don't resent their success, or at least I don't. We enabled it. But now the times have changed, and it is time to recalibrate that relationship. We don't need to treat China like a third world country and give them the advantages of trade and um, finance and market economies that they've, they would have enjoyed and have enjoyed as a, as a third world developing country. So I'm not saying we should have an adversarial relationship, and I'm not saying we should try to keep them down. Let's just play fair. Because right. they have done great things, we acknowledge that. It's a historic achievement in the history of the world. But the time has come to rejigger that relationship. Do you have concerns about Huawei, for example, yeah. or the Silk Road and, and this sort of the buying up of ports uh, throughout Africa? This concern of do you have a concern about a new sort of colonialism? And do you have concerns about China's rise and displacing the United States as a sort of the predominant power in the global mm -hmm. order? Well, the Chinese for years had said to Americans, we're going to have, we know that you're in charge. You're the big brother. We're going to right. be the little big brother. brother, little we're brother. Gonna, we, we want a peaceful rise. We don't have any problems right. here. But I think that their rhetoric and their ambitions have changed in the last decade or so. Um, the things I would point to are their refusal, for example, to renegotiate a lot of these deals. Mm -hmm. Their beg, borrow, steal, however you can, access to American technology, Western technology. But they've also done probably three things geographically, militarily, that have mm -hmm. gotten my, I'm nervous about. One is the South China Sea and the yes. East China Sea. Now, that is the, the waterway through which all majority of the world trade flows from Europe, from Africa, from the Middle East, all goes through the South China Sea on its way to China, Philippines, Japan, Korea. And the Chinese have very aggressively moved to say, well, that's an internal Chinese lake. Right. That's not how they started. They this said, not well, we're gonna be, well, there's some islands here. We're going to build them up, and they're really going to just be for our fishing fleets. But no, right. they've militarized those islands, and they are now moving towards claiming that, that in the world's greatest sea lane of, of, of commerce should be an internal Chinese lake. The Chinese can decide who does what and when. So that's a big problem. Mm -hmm. The Silk Road, which is the Chinese attempt to, um, to take the countries that... Is the, so the Silk Road was in the 14th, 15th, 16th yes. century where trade went from China 
to Europe, to the Middle East. And the Chinese have attempted to recreate that Silk Road with China in charge. It's called, well, it's called One Road, One Belt, One Belt, One Road. So the Chinese will build this physical highway, but they will also build the uh, virtual highway um, by going through all these countries, building things to Chinese standards, the Chinese will be in charge. Not unlike the Romans did during the Roman Empire in Europe. And then the final thing is that their maritime ambitions. So the Chinese have looked at um, Pakistan, the east coast of Africa, Mm -hmm. and they have said, well, we're going to build ports. And just like the South China Sea, where it's really all about fishing, they said, well, these ports are really because we want to sell and and trade Chinese goods through these ports. But, in fact, a lot of some of those ports are now being militarized. So the Chinese are building a maritime route, they're building a land route, and they're trying to control the world's global um, um, commerce route. Now, in addition to that, what have the Chinese done? There's something called Made in China 2025. Yes. Where the Chinese leaders have said that they want to dominate the 10 technologies of the future. They've gone from making, you know, low-value, like tennis shoes, to all the way up to computers and high technology. But they've identified 10 technologies of the future, stuff like robotics, artificial intelligence, Mm -hmm. um, bioengineering. And they've said, we want to be the leaders in those, and we are going to do it however we have to. We're going to buy American companies. We're going to steal intellectual intelligence if we have to. We're going to demand that Western companies who want to do business in China have to turn over their intellectual property to us. Right. So that's another way that all these things added together, plus a much more aggressive attitude and talking about it. I think that the Chinese no longer want to be America's little brother, that they look at the world and they say, we are going to dominate the world. We're going to dominate the technology of the world, the commerce of the world. With our Huawei International 5G global network, we're going to dominate the communications of the world. And then we'll rewrite the rules according to our specifications. So is that not the case for multilateralism in the sense that it would be USA and rest of world versus China? Not to say that this would be uh, an overtly aggressive stance, but one mm-hmm. example would be the Trans-Pacific Partnership, where America and you know, uh, you know, a dozen you know, states in and around mm-hmm. the Pacific Rim decided to make trade agreements and lower tariffs so that they could constrain China's ability to trade with those companies and, and frankly, benefit the benefit ideally all of the all of the, the nation states within it, but certainly the United States. You know, I think that, and you're talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yes, the TPP, you know, yes. I think that, that that would be a great thing to revisit in Trump's second term, but I don't think it was good to do it in the first place. Why? Because Trump understood that if you rebuild the American economy to make it the strongest economy in the world, you have a lot of leverage. That's if you get off true. of Middle East oil and make America energy independent, you have a lot of leverage in the energy world. Right. And we also, because we... Um, are the recipient of purchasers of most countries' goods. The, the other, other countries make stuff and they sell it to us. They need to sell it to us. Right. We make stuff, be nice to sell it to them, but mostly we sell it to ourselves. So Trump understood those things and realized that if he could fix the American economy, if he could get us off of Middle East energy, he could use trade wars to renegotiate the, the, the agreements with China, with Japan, with South Korea. I think well, there'll be one with Britain soon. Uh, Mexico and Canada. So put the United States in a far better position, have much more leverage, and then start negotiating. And so, I, I mean, my advice to him is that now that you have China, 
with a phase one agreement, trade agreement. You have a trade agreement with Mexico and Canada. You have one with Japan and South Korea. You'll probably get one with the Brits by the end of the year. Um, that we now have a consortium and a trading bloc where we can go to China. A lot of us have the same complaints about the Chinese treatment. Certainly. And then we could go as a bloc led by the United States and say, we demand a new deal now. We don't want to keep you down, but we want you to stop exploiting the, the generosity that we've given you over these decades. Right. No, that's... Uh that is interesting. I want to talk to you about Pax Americana, and I think that's really, or the, the sort of the, the aftermath potentially of Pax Americana, which I think we've visited when we relate, uh, when we, we speak about um, China. It has given us to some extent a world at peace, although of course we've seen American interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan, which I know that you um, have seen as a, just a sort of a, a complete waste of, of, um, of American lives, and of course American treasure. How do we extricate ourselves from places like Iraq and Afghanistan? We know there's going to be a vacuum. We know that there are concerns with uh, you know, ISIS and al-Qaeda and, uh, and other non-state actors in the Middle East. How do we get out of those big wars uh, and focus our energy and our resources at home? How do we end the endless yeah. wars? See, I think that foreign affairs like life, frankly, like child-rearing, you pick your fights and you have yeah. priorities. To me, the big priority now is China. And while ISIS is a problem, and while all these other things, you know, they're problems, but they're not, they, you don't want to lose track of the real problem. I worked for right. President Reagan, and, and I think that he was really great at understanding what, what's the real game here. It's, it's the Soviet Union and the United States, and it's nuclear weapons. So let's not get sidetracked with all this other stuff, because it might prevent you from dealing with the major issue of your time. When Trump has, has allowed the energy industry in the United States. I mean, we have gone in three or four years from net energy importers to exporters. Right. Within a short period of time, we can replace the Middle East as the world's major source of energy. So once we, we could get off of their energy, we didn't have to get sort of sucked into their psychodramas that they've been fighting each other for thousands of years, um, ethno-tribal warfare. We don't belong in the middle of that. We don't need their oil. In fact, we could probably replace their oil. So so I think that that, to me, is... One of the important things is, yeah, all the other stuff that you've mentioned, that's important, but it's not as, as important. And if it distracts you from doing the important thing, which is dealing with Asia and China and the 5G global technologies of the right. future, then you should have a very different approach. So, yeah, I, I was critical of um, not going into Afghanistan because we should have killed the people who went after us. But we kind of did that after three months. Right. We should not have stayed around to rebuild Afghanistan. And we sure shouldn't have stayed around and tried to rebuild these countries that don't want to be rebuilt. Right. And you talk in the book about the idea that we're trying to nation build sort of overnight, even if overnight looks like 20 years. And what is missing is the buildup of civil society, is the buildup of institutions. Um, you can't just make a democracy. You can't just create a democracy. You can't just create a government. You can't just create educational institutions. It really has to come from the countries where you are. You, you, you talked about the invasions being the right thing, but the staying being the wrong thing. And I'm interested in your views on institutions in the United States. So so I've appreciated that you have your, your candor with respect to some of the president's tweeting, for example. <laughs> and I'm interested in your thoughts on the importance of institutions in this country as, a, uh, you know, as the backbone of democracy. The administrative state, which I know you're not a big fan of, nope. which is arguably one institution. <laughs> but then on the other hand, perhaps the judiciary, where, for example, we've seen the president who has attacked judges, who is sort of meddling a little bit in some, to some way or another in the terms of you know, speaking about some of the judges that are in charge of trials of people that are associated with him. 
Can you talk to me about the importance of institutions both home and abroad? Well, I guess the most, one of the most important institutions, I mean, First Amendment, is freedom of speech and freedom of press. And I think Trump understood, like Reagan did, that the press is going to be against him. Yeah, they're against all press. <laughs> no, 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 no. But they're, no, no, no. I, I absolutely would argue that. Well, George Washington, I mean, you can see the quotes from various presidents. And I, I do agree yeah. that some presidents get better or worse treatment depending yeah. on which channel you're tuned to, frankly. And George Washington talked about the press. Right. Didn't run for a third term, I think, because he just couldn't be bothered with the newspapermen. But no, continue. <laughs> so I think Trump has understood the same way Reagan did, the same way I think all of our great revolutionary presidents did, is that you have to find a way to get directly to the American people mm-hmm. and jump over the heads of those, um, the press establishment. I mean, Reagan did it by going around the country and speaking to um, in cities and towns all across the country going to local radio stations, local television stations. Um, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, he did it by fireside chats, by talking on the radio directly to the American people. So how does Trump do it? He understands the Washington press corps is going to not like him. In fact, he understands they're going to hate him. They're going to lie about him. Fake news. But he's found a way to, to reach directly over the heads of those people, directly to the American people, tweeting. I mean, look, sometimes he... I don't like the tweets. A lot of some of them just make my skin crawl. On the other hand, it's been very effective for his ability to get directly to the American people. And so, for that, to me, that's an institution that he, he and Reagan and FDR and let's say Lincoln, going all the way back, have preserved, which is that the free speech of the American leaders to talk mm-hmm. directly to the American people. So how do we find that balance? So, you know, freedom of the press is also in the First Amendment. Um, and, for example, we wouldn't have had Watergate if we hadn't had, mm-hmm. uh, you know, would, you know the, the Wall Street Journal, um, excuse me, Washington Post reporters. So where is the balance between, you know, a, a press mob getting in the way of a president and a fourth estate that is actually asking the questions that matter to get answers to the American people? Or is there always just going to be a tension? There's always going to be a tension, and that's healthy. Yeah. But yeah. what will happen? So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how do you, you know, you and I talked, you talked about this at the very beginning of our conversation where you said there are a lot of people just screaming at each other. And yeah. they, they don't want to hear. I mean, you can't reason with this. It's like trying to, I don't know, it's like trying to reason with a tired two-year-old toddler. Yes. You know, you're I never going to break through. I experience of that. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> you you're do never so. going to break through. Right, never. So, so what happens? So I think you realize that eventually those people just become irrelevant. And that's, that's the ultimate proof. It's... Like, I'm a real believer in the common sense of the common American. And those, those voices that are trying to strangle or refuse to listen, they'll eventually go by the wayside because nobody's going to listen to them anymore. They're just screaming. So am I worried about the balance? Yeah, I think it'll, you know, we're a democracy. It'll get a little out of whack here and there. But at the end of the day, it, it seems to find its center. Right. You um, studied nuclear non-proliferation at yeah. MIT. I'm so excited to talk to you about nuclear issues. <laughs> I can't believe you just said that. Here we are, two American women, <laughs> professional women in midtown Manhattan, and you are going to talk to me about nuclear weapons. How cool is that? It's really cool. It's really cool. It's really cool. And actually what struck me about the way you talked about elites and the idea that there are sort of certain parts of information or policy that the average American doesn't get access to. I think actually that nuclear non-proliferation is one of those places where, or, you know, nuclear strategy, you know, average American voter doesn't feel that they have agency over that issue. It doesn't really come up in politics. It doesn't come up in debates. But setting that aside... One, one question straight out of the gates is, should the president sign New Start? 
All right, Should so he... this is the strategic arms limitation. Right. So this is the Russia's. bilateral mm. uh, treaty with Russia. Yeah. Um, that is basically a non-proliferation agreement. There's a five-year extension on the table. Putin has said he will sign with no preconditions. What are the pros and cons? Or are, why, 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 yeah. why well, not I've been part of those from the beginning. So I worked in the Nixon administration when we had the first arms control agreements with the Soviet Union, the, you know, the SALT talks. And I yes. worked for Reagan when we had the START talks and when we, when we took it to eliminate whole classes of nuclear weapons between yes. the two of us. Um, so where are we now? At the beginning of the Trump administration, one of the things I did as deputy national security advisor was to take a review uh, American foreign policy in the first couple of weeks. You know, what was the pre Obama administration? Where are we now? It's like, hey, what's the status report, okay? And so one of the things that was pretty clear was that the Russians had been cheating yes. for years um, on this class of weaponry called intermediate weapons. It was also pretty clear that the Chinese were developing them, and they weren't part of any deal. No, they are not. So my advice was, well, let's get to where we need to get to, and then let's call a spade a spade. If we cheat... Every reporter will say we're cheating, right? right? But the Russians cheat, nobody calls them on it. So I think it was the right thing to do. What I did learn with Reagan and what I relearned with Trump is you've got to have some chips to play in the game. Sure. You've got to have leverage. And where is your leverage if you, if you don't even have that class of weapons? Reagan was able to go to the Soviet Union then and say, let's cancel this, let's cancel that. And we had a lot of leverage over there. We had economic leverage, we had technological leverage, and we had the threat of a defense... Um, a defense missile system, missile defense system, that they knew they couldn't build and they thought we might be able to. And so I think Trump has, has gone to the right place for this. It doesn't mean you never have these agreements, but you have them and you negotiate them from a position of strength. Sure. Um, so moving on in the nuclear sphere to North Korea. Um, yeah. We have had this sort of cycle, and you explain this beautifully in your book, this sort of cycle of committal and non-committal and promises and carrots and sticks with North Korea, at least since the early 1990s when we understood mm -hmm. that they were building a nuclear weapons program. Um, what are your views on whether this is even a, a solvable problem? Are we going to just have to live with the idea that n North Korea will have nuclear weapons? Again, I would say priorities. The priority is China. So how do you stop? How, what do you do differently? I mean, we've tried the Republicans, Democrats, everybody's tried a little bit of sticks, a little bit of carrots. Mm -hmm. We hit you on a stick and then, you know, you, you have sanctions, you have economic problems. So then the North Koreans come to the negotiating table and we say, great, great, we'll let up on the, on the pressure. Well, that's... You know, then and they then go back they to, yeah, I mean, it's again, the two, <laughs> tired two-year-old. How are you arguing with that tired two-year-old? So um, I think that Trump has done the right thing. And the, and the review that, again, we had a review of American foreign policy in the beginning of the Trump administration in the Situation Room. And I call the, the deputies of all the agencies of government, Treasury, State, Defense, Intelligence, Military. And I said, okay, so what are we going to do about North Korea? And... They basically had the same old policy, which to me was basically doing nothing. And I said, go back to your agencies. Come back to me in about a week's time. I want to hear all your ideas. Think outside. The, think way outside the box. Right. And so I said, on one hand, and I actually, in good TV style, did the hand <laughs> motions. I said, on yes. this hand, I want you to think of maybe accepting the, the North Koreans as a nuclear yes. weapons state right. and a member of the international community. On the other hand, I want you to think about regime change and what we might do militarily. And then I said, no, let's think about overt economic pressure. Let's think about covert things that we could do. But come back and let's shake this tree again, because you probably haven't done a reassessment of North Korea's position in the last couple of years. Let's come back. So they all come back about a week later. 
And I spent the time in between really learning, relearning a lot about Korea. I had early in my career done a paper on North and South Korea, but it was probably about a decade before you were born. So anyway, so they come back and they have these ideas and there was no clear, easy thing. But there was a little bit of economic stuff you could do, a little bit of covert stuff you could do, a little bit of military stuff you could do. And if you put them all together, you could have... Instead of thinking of a dial that's either a switch, that's either on or off, carrots or sticks, you could have a dial. And then you would start turning up the dial of pressure in all these ways so that you could affect the, Chinese, to affect the North Koreans. The other part of it was understanding, though, the role China plays in North Korea. 75% of North Korea's food, fuel, transportation fuel, heating oil comes as sort of gifts from China. Mm-hmm. So could you get the Chinese to help you? Well, we had other things going on with China, which was right. the trade. So I think the Chinese may have said nice stuff, oh, we're going to help you, but they never did. And Trump has said that. He said, well, they've tried. Maybe they couldn't do it. But the other thing is that Trump, I think, and he's done this all on his own. So all those experts that he was getting advice from, they didn't understand, as a negotiator understands, that with Trump and with Kim Jong-un, it would always be personal. Yes. Kim doesn't care about his people. No. He'll let him starve. He doesn't care about his generals. He'll feed them to cages of dogs. Right. He cares only about him and his ego, and maybe he cares a little bit about being a greater leader than his father or his grandfather were. Right. So Trump, I think, has found that third way, carrot stick ego. And I think he's played to Kim's ego. He's welcomed him in. Right. He said, let's go meet, I'll meet you in Singapore. It was very carefully chosen. I mean, I was gone from the administration by then. But Singapore was a brilliant choice. Why? Singapore is the most modern city of, in the world, and they've done it in about 30 years' time. Right. So that's a demonstration to Kim. This could be you. The next meeting they had was in Hanoi. The United States fought the Vietnam War, and we were mortal enemies. And so the other example was to say, Kim, look, this is Vietnam. America used to hate Vietnam. We were at war with each other, just like we've not had good relations with you. But look at how close we are now. So I think those were carefully calibrated to show Kim... These are the possibilities. And then the other thing that Trump did, which I thought was actually brilliant, most people thought it was corny and not sophisticated enough, but he did this trailer, this like a movie trailer. Right, to show of saying, how, Kim, right, this could this be you. Good, you could right. be a world's great leader. It's like a real estate video almost, right, <laughs> yes. showing him what modernization and a modern economy could look like and, yeah. you know, what Pyongyang might. Uh, the Pyongyang could be a world leader. So who knows? I mean, it's the most intractable problem in the world of what do you deal with, North, how do you deal with sure. North Korea? But at least... Sounds like, how do you solve a problem like North Korea? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, maybe that. Anyway, but I think that that was the right thing to do. Who knows where it goes? I think if you have a different relationship with China going forward, North Korea might be in a different position too. Right. I mean, and sort of that sort of broader point, I think, is that everything is interconnected. You yeah. have geopolitics, you have trade. You have assertions of sovereignty, um, you have domestic politics, and all of these things are levers, uh, both, to, both domestically and uh, internationally. You've said about the president, watch what he does and not what he says. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm interested in your thoughts about how that has borne out, the things that he's done that you think are really important for the country. And I'd also just like to ask you about one thing around the border wall. But let's just start with what he does, not what he says. Um, I think, so I was trying to figure out what drives Trump. Everybody's been, you know, most presidents have a lot of analysis of, yeah. of what, what makes them tick. I think this and, one more than others. Yes. But Trump, <laughs> Trump, you know, so there's a shelf or there's on a library about what made, you know, John F. Kennedy. Trump is going to have a whole library, what yeah. makes Donald Trump tick. I think that having worked closely with him, I think what makes him tick is he wants to win. Yeah. It's all about winning. 
And he's from the New York real estate world where you've either made money that year or you've lost. And he also was in the TV world. He, had, he created the whole genre of reality television. You either had good ratings, you had bad ratings. Washington is much vaguer than that. Everybody claims they win, very few people have. And so I think for him, it was all about winning. How you get there, how you get the good ratings, how you make the money when you sell the building, doesn't really matter. It's just getting to where you can win. Mm -hmm. And so I think that Trump looks at negotiating positions, um, trash-talking opponents. I think he just looks at those as things you have to do to get to the point where you win. So it's a, so it's a tactic. It's, an it's a tactic. tactic. He, when he comes in, and so every time he sort of proposes a negotiation with somebody, let's say on tariffs with the Chinese, you know, the media goes nuts, the, the political establishment goes nuts, and say, well, that's just absurd. Trump probably thinks it's absurd, too, but that's his opening bid. That's not where he expects to settle. So that um, I think to a certain extent... He says a lot of strange things. He'll say to Kim Jong-un, for example, one week he he's sort of trash talks him on Twitter, like, my missiles are bigger than your missiles. I could decimate you in a war. And then the next week he says, Kim and I are sending each other love letters. To Trump, it doesn't matter. He doesn't care who he humiliates, sometimes even himself. He doesn't worry about having two contradictory thoughts in the same place. He doesn't worry about you know, overruling himself. He just wants to win. Right. And it's been pretty effective for him. So, so one example I think that maybe his uh, rhetoric has gone in the way, and I, I'm interested in your thoughts, and you may entirely disagree with me, is the southern border wall. So yeah. 2006, we had the Secure Fences Act under George uh, W. Bush, and it was passed in the House and the Senate with bipartisan support. And it was fencing for 700 miles of the southern border. Mm -hmm. Now we are in this crazy place where we have sort of Trump supporters and Trump detractors fighting over almost the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if the difference is the way that he talked about border security. So he talked about building a wall with Mexico paying for it, the way he's talked about uh, immigrants and immigration. Do you think sometimes his rhetoric actually gets in the way of a policy that may actually be beneficial in the end? And I'll give you a, a quote. Um, when Bush talked about the, the Secure Fences Act, he said in the, in the announcement that it still requires that we honour the great American tradition of the melting pot. Mm -hmm. When he talked about comprehensive immigration reform. Do you think sometimes the rhetoric gets in the way of the policy? On all sides. I sure. think that you could solve the immigration problem in about 90 minutes. But nobody wants to give the other guy a win. When the Republicans, you know, and I'm going back to Reagan even, mm -hmm. Republicans have a re legitimate proposal. Democrats don't like it because they don't want to give him a win. Democrats do. The Republicans don't want to give him a win. I think right now we're in such a stuck place that how you solve it is pretty simple. It's just that Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to give Donald Trump a win right now. And yet, you know, she did a lot of work with the USMCA and, you know, did a lot of work with labor provisions and other things. Yeah. Well, but she did. And, you know, he also, uh, you know, and it didn't invite her to the announcement. So, you know, I think there's a little bit of pettiness on both sides. But sure. they did do some work. They are on politicians. That, Come on. <laughs> do you think it's worse than ever before, though? I mean, you've yeah. been in politics a long well, time. I was, you know, I was in the White House during Watergate. Um, right. I think the difference now is that, um, that we really are in a period where it's a revolution. Mm -hmm. That, you know, it's, it's about way more than just Trump. Trump wants you to think it's all about him, and Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats, they want you to think it's all about him, too. But it's really not. It's, it's that the establishment status quo of the Washington establishment isn't getting the job done. Right. And the American people, whether they're Bernie Sanders supporters or Donald Trump supporters, have said, no, we want a different direction. 
So I think that's what's different, is that the, this is a war that nobody wins, political war, that there's no middle ground, that somebody's going to be successful and the other side is going to fritter away and fade into the background, as I said. As far as the wall itself, to me the wall's a symbol. It's just get control of your borders right now. What's the biggest issue on the planet right now that people care about? It's the coronavirus. And countries are sealing their border with China. Airlines are refusing to fly flights sure. into China. Now, if you didn't have a border, this would be a pretty hard thing to do. So borders actually are important. Knowing who's in your country is important no as question. well. No, and I don't disagree with you at, at all. I'm just sort of interested in the rhetorical argument in and around it. Um, so moving to, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about Russia, and I'd like to talk sure. a little about Putin. Um, as we've seen with, you know, 2016, um, election interference, there's some asymmetric warfare going on. Russia is, of course, a nuclear state, only second only to the, to the United States, but it has the economy about the size of Italy, and it is losing its grip on, sort mm -hmm. of on energy, not, not least because of American in mm -hmm. energy independence. Mm -hmm. Where do we go from here? What is the best approach with Putin to make sure that we retain our predominance and that we don't allow Russia, for example, to get into bed with China or other enemies and yeah. sort of create an axis that would be threatening to our sort of global pre predominance? You know, I think that that's one of the great disappointments of American politics today is that could we have found a way to have a, a way of, of working with Russia Mm -hmm. And I would prefer that we would have an agreement of non-interference. You don't muck around in our elections. Right. We're not going to muck around in yours. Sure. But I don't think that politically is going to happen. I think that no matter who's the next president of the United States, and I do think it will be Donald Trump, that um, any kind of a relationship with Russia is possible right now. It's a shame because we're in a very good position, um, a strong position, yes. to deal with Russia. Why? For, a lot of it is economic. You know, the Russians... They've, they've sort of done the same mistake twice. In the 1970s, when the price of oil was going up, Russia's a big exporter of oil, yes. they, they really went hog wild when they got all that extra windfall profits from the oil. They spread around the world. They definitely had a big military buildup. And then when Reagan came in in the 1980s, he was able to, because of the price of oil going down and because of American technological superiority, and because of the of just the fact, I mean, the incompetence of a of a command economy, he was able to drive the Russians, then the Soviet Union, into bankruptcy and collapse over the economy. So then, what did Putin do? I mean, Putin, and this is somebody I also have spent some time looking at. Is Putin? He's in his middle sixties. So when he was coming onto the world stage, KGB agent, Russia, the Soviet Union, was a great nation. I right. mean, a superpower, toe-to-toe -to -toe with America. And he could look forward to a great future. Right. But then everything collapsed by the late 80s, early 90s. Putin's career not, not, you know, along with it, it collapsed. So Putin himself goes to graduate school at that point. And he wrote a dissertation in Russian. I don't read Russian, but I read translation of it. And he talks about how to make Russia great again that they would use the natural resources, mm -hmm. consolidate them under state control, yeah. and then the price of oil would eventually go up and they'd be rich again. And that's exactly the plan he's followed, was his dissertation. And Russia did become rich again. Uh, when oil prices started going, what were they, up to $200 a barrel? Right. And yet then it all collapsed after that. But, but Putin, instead of taking the windfall profits that he would have had, say, 2010, and reinvesting them into the economy, yeah. He, he went on another spending spree. 
let's build the military, let's do social services, let's consolidate control. So now that the price of oil is down, and I don't think it ever goes up to those levels again, he's kind of broke. And so this would be a very good time to force a deal with the Russians. Let them have their dignity, and, and um, as Reagan did at the collapse of the Soviet Union. But we're in, a, we're in a strong position now, sadly, because of American domestic politics. And I would put a lot of that um, right into the lap of the Democrats and the Obama administration and the intelligence community. They have, in effect, pushed Russia into the arms of China, which to me is one of the greatest geopolitical threats is the Chinese and the Russians getting together again like they did in the 1950s and 60s with China's money this time and Russia's military technology. And is that a not another argument for multilateralism, for holding our allies close so that we can collectively, on a sort of values-based alliance, which is really American values mm -hmm. sort of that built the post-World War II era, is that another case for multilateralism, for making sure that NATO is strong, that our alliances are strong, that our friendships are maintained? Sure. I mean, I think NATO's great, but let's everybody do their fair share. Right. I mean, an alliance where the United States is just handing out goodies um, at our expense to countries that, that don't want to ante up for their own defense or their own economies, I don't think that's a fair alliance at all. So I, I don't think you'd just, you know, do away with these. You just improve right. them. I would like to talk about you. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Um, you know, it's been so interesting to talk about some of these big ideas. I'd like to turn back to what great power war if we can. Um, but you started with a part-time job as a night shift secretary for Henry Kissinger during, um, you know, during the Nixon administration. And the last job that you had at the White House was, of course, Deputy National Security Advisor under, 40, under the 45th President of the United mm -hmm. States. Tell me about that, the arc of your life um, and what you've sort of learned along the way because you started in the White House and you ended in the White House, not to say that anything's over, of course, especially <laughs> after this interview. Um, but Absolutely. <laughs> I'm just really interested in if those two things are bookends, what came in the middle and how did you end up back there? You know, I was, I mean, I'm in my middle late 60s and for me it was the first opportunity for women to have equal access to education and eventually equal access professionally. I mean, I went to, I was from a working class family. I went to college and graduate school on scholarships. But the first real job I had was my freshman year in college. I was 18 years old. And I was the world's fastest typist. So I got a job as the night shift secretary for Henry Kissinger. And that was in 1970. And at that time, women didn't, I mean, the most you could sort of aspire to maybe in the White House, is to be the aide or the assistant or maybe even the administrative assistant right. to a man. It just, they just weren't open. And it's not, it's not, a, it was just the way it was. Sure. And so for me, the, and I just, I didn't have some grand plan of how to be a, you know, glass ceiling breaker or a pioneer, but it turned out that way because I just took advantage of opportunities as they came along. But to end my career, and sitting just a few feet away from my first job as a secretary, to end it as the probably one of the most senior people in the American government setting foreign policy in a job that, you know, the 18-year-old Kathy Troya would never even, even aspire to or thought was possible to the point where my daughters, um, they think it's routine that women have these jobs. It's right. expected. 
So well, because they see what you've done too, and they've grown up in a place. Of a different, it's a different country. Things. I mean, yeah, opportunities sure. have every year opened, open, open for women. And now, in fact, um, my older daughter is about to have her first child, probably by the time this airs. <laughs> um, but the fact that there are so many opportunities, and, and to a lot, to a certain extent, and I love working with women and talking to women of all ages. But I think the big problem now is. Gee, how do I have it all? You know, I have a career, yeah. I have an education, I have a marriage, I have kids. And how do you juggle it? It's almost impossible. For me, uh, I, for yeah. me I live my life in <laughs> chapters. Yes. Um, I had a great education, a great career, and then in my middle 30s, retired. We had won the Cold War. I was a Cold Warrior. I was a nuclear weapons expert. So I retired to be a housewife and mother, and I did it for well over a decade. And they were some of the most rewarding times of my life. But then got back into the swing of things after September 11th and had a pretty good background. So I thought, well, actually, it was my older daughter who said, Mom, I think the country's under attack. You should stop having lunch with your girlfriends and go out and do what you're good at. So for me, it was a good life advice. lived in chapters. It was, I have a wonderful husband of 35 years, five children, grandchildren, but I've also had a great career. It's the American dream. No, it is. And what you write about is this notion that that's what we all want and deserve and how do we get back to a place where there is opportunity for all where we have equality under law uh, I mean the fact that you took 10 years off and I say this is a working parent mm -hmm. um, I can't couldn't imagine I'm so afraid to take time away and sort of losing a, yeah, a yeah. career rung yeah. it's sort of it's almost miraculous that you could do that and then go back and yet it was your qualifications and possibly your network I mean you could talk a little bit about that but it is, I think we're so worried about losing ground that we're just working, working, working. Mm -hmm. And yet you've really shown that you can start at part, uh, you know, here at A and end up at Z with a, a very interesting and fluid and sort of, uh, I guess, non-linear path. Definitely non-linear. But, you know, for, for anybody, man or woman, but particularly for women, you have a lot of opportunities. But don't let those opportunities get in the way of a fulfilling life. I mean, I've had professional success, but I've also got personal fulfillment. I have five terrific kids. Yeah. They're married, I have grandchildren, and I'm proud of every single one of them, and every single one of them is different. And if I hadn't been part of their growing up, if I hadn't had an opportunity to, I don't know, scold them <laughs> to make their bed and to do all the normal mom things. Yeah, school lunches. I think it's, and yeah, it's important. All right, so I, I have a quote from you, uh, and it says, Look around you. Uh, the future is in all of our hands. It is not up to a group of elites or a permanent governing class or a bunch of power-grabbing ideologues or some self-appointed saviors to reinvent America for the 21st century. It is up to average, common, regular American citizens. We are the people whose task it is to bring about America's next revolution. What can we, the people, do to secure this revolution and make sure that we, that, that we can live lives of fulfillment with the rights that we are guaranteed under the Constitution? How do we make a difference? Participate. Get involved. I think one of the big problems in America, the thing that used to worry me the most, was that 10 years ago, 40% of the American people had checked out. Right. I said, I'm not political. I don't get involved. I don't care about politics. I don't go to vote. And what Trump has done, in part, when he's going to these rallies, um, is that he has taken a group of people who felt disenfranchised, who weren't part, they were neither rich nor powerful nor politically active or influential, yeah. 
And he said, look, it's your country, too. And so that, I think, whatever you say about the policies and the politics of it, the fact that more Americans now are in the political process that they've been... They're in the arena. Uh, on they're the, in the, the arena. And we'll figure it out. Right. As long as we're all in there together. And so I think that that... Um, that the single most important thing anybody can do is get involved and show up at those rallies, show up at the polls, vote, hold those guys vote. to account. Don't be, don't let that. They shouldn't govern for you. You govern for yourselves. If you don't like the way they're doing, get rid of them. Right. I mean, I think there were 100 million eligible voters last cycle in the national election that didn't vote. So mm-hmm. your point is well taken. You don't get to have a say if you don't actually do the thing that is constitutionally yeah. guaranteed to you, which is, of course, um, vote. But it's not just that it's guaranteed to you. You know, with rights come responsibilities. No question. And I think that, that for too long a lot of people have said, it's not my responsibility. You bet it is. You know, however you're doing it, it is your responsibility to choose leaders. You have... Your forebearers have sacrificed so that you have that right. Right. Now you have the responsibility. All right. I'm going to end with another quote from you. Um, And what I loved about this is that it is a statement about what you've observed in the country. It is a statement about the themes in your book, but it's also a statement about you. And you write, America is an exceptional nation because it makes this personal reinvention possible. But even more profound is that we also have the power to reinvent the nation. You reinvented yourself many times over. You have served this country. You've written this wonderful book, which as somebody who is politically, you know, in many ways opposed to you, I found engaging. And what I loved about it was it was so much that I found in here that there was common ground. So Katie McFarland, Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People, it's been a pleasure. It's to been talk an to you honor. Thank you so much. Thank Daniel. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards. Please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts.